Good morning. This morning we're going to continue our series in Ezra and Nehemiah by bringing Ezra to a close, looking at chapters uh, 9 and 10. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt as if you've been left holding a real thorn, only just to realize it's actually a beautiful rose? This is kind of how I felt like whenever I was given this passage to preach upon. Um, I, I flicked open a commentary on the passage and it said, The treatment described in these two chapters of how Ezra tackled the problem of mixed marriage is among the least attractive parts of Ezra and Nehemiah, if not the whole of the Old Testament. I thought to myself, great, I've got a real thorn here. But actually, when, when we look into the passage and, and draw upon some of the things that it teaches us, there are real roses of truth. So before we read the, the two chapters, let me just set the scene. Let me give some, some context to the text. Ezra has come to Jerusalem under the direction of the king of Persia. He has, he has made the difficult journey in the past two chapters, a journey of faith where the hand of his God was upon him. The king sent Ezra to Jerusalem to, to, to carry out certain specific tasks. Some of, some of these are, are told to us in chapter 7, verse 25 and 26. These verses tell us how the king said to Ezra that he was to appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice throughout the land and he was to teach the laws of God. Whoever did not obey the law was to be punished by death, banishment, imprisonment, or confiscation of property. So let's read together Ezra chapter 9 and 10. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. O oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up, lift up my face to you, my God, because of our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so, our God, give light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not destroyed us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands, 
You gave through your servants the prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with the impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekinah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all the Israelites under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonan, son of Elishib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many here, and it is rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who is married to foreign women come and set a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jaziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Messala and Shabbatai, The Levite opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. 
And then we have a list of all of the names of the people who, who were involved in, in the sin of intermarriage. And verse 44 says, And all these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Although we can learn a lot about marriage from this passage, I, I think the passage is much more about a few key principles in the Christian faith. I think the passage shows us a model of true repentance and also helps us to understand that we need to be a, a people that are separate. So the title for my sermon is The People of God Fail, But There Is Still Hope. A model of true repentance. I want to look at this in in, in two sections. First of all, the scandal, and then the hope. The scandal, the, the sin of the people of God, and the hope, the model of true repentance. At university, I had a flatmate called Alice. Alice was from Dumfries. And uh, she used to say, oh, hello. She, she, had a, she was very endearing sort of a girl, if not a little bit mumsy. But that, that was quite nice in a flatmate. Um, if, if Alice ever did anything wrong, she would say to you, sorry, but I meant it. And it, in some way, she got away with it. But, but now, thinking back, I realized to myself, Alice wasn't sorry at all. You know, if she, if she ever took something that was, uh, maybe she ate your food or, or took a bowl that you had washed and prepared for, for your dinner and used it, you know, she would say, sorry, but who meant it? And she kind of got away with it. And maybe we, when we come to God, sometimes we say sorry. But the fact is, we may be sorry in the moment, but we know that we meant it, and we know that we're going to do it again. We should ask ourselves this morning, is, is confession without really meaning it? Is confession without true repentance simply just bragging? Let's look into the, the passage. Let's look at the, the scandal of the people of God. Ezra 9 and 10 identifies this sin of intermarriage. Ezra 9 is where the people face up to the sin. And Ezra 10 is where they turn from it. So let's look at the text in Ezra chapter 9. In verse 1, we see that after these things had been done, you think this refers back to chapter 8 and and what has happened there, but there is a a gap in time here. Ezra and, and the people have arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month. We see that in chapter 7, verse 9. And these events seem to take place in the ninth month, we see in, in chapter 10, verse 9. So this is, this is a four-month gap here. Ezra's purpose was to teach Scripture. His motivation, his concern was to establish the law as, as the basis for life in Israel. If Ezra's been around for four months, he is going to be driving home the, the teaching of the law. So this may explain why the leaders have come forward with this confession. This may explain why their, their conscience has been pricked. Scripture has, has pricked their conscience. We look in verses 1 and verse 2. The leaders speak up of how they as a people have not kept themselves separate. How they have mingled the holy seed. This sin of intermarriage is a clear violation to Scripture. 
Exodus 34, 11 to 16, and Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5, expressly forbid intermarriage with, with the peoples of the land. The calling on Israel is to be a separate people, separating from the culture and the people around them. They are a called out people. They are called out of Egypt. They are called out of the nations. But the people are now in open rebellion against God and his word. If we were to try and apply some teachings on, on mixed marriage directly from this passage, and we were to take, try to take some of those things in, into our, our context today, it's important just to keep in mind some, some key biblical truths. Marriage with, with foreigners is not specifically forbidden in the Old Testament. Plenty of the, the, the forefathers of the faith married foreign women. It is marriage with the indigenous population of the lands of Canaan that is forbidden. It is a religious, not a racial separation that is called for. Also in the New Testament, the New Testament teaches that we are not to be unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. But concerning a Christian married to an unbelieving partner, the teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 rules out divorce as an option and encourages the lifestyle of the believer to be such that they might win their unbelieving partner to faith. The teaching is to remain in the situation you are in when God has called you. The key aspect to this sin, this, this scandal of the people of God, is that the distinctive element of their Jewish community was being watered down by the, the communities around them and by intermarriage with, with the surrounding people. If we are to apply this scandal to ourselves, this sin of the people of God, the application of intermarriage is conformity with the world. Israel was called to be separate so that she might shine as a, as a witness to the nations for God and his standard. And this was being threatened by, by, by them losing their distinctiveness. Some years ago, one of, my, one of my best friends, who's not a Christian, was having a conversation with another friend of mine, and I could overhear them. Sure, you're no different to me. Sure, Ray's no different to me. What difference would it make if I became a Christian? I wouldn't be any different. This secretly and quietly broke my heart. This, this friend of mine who I love and I want to know Jesus and, and, and come to faith in him doesn't see what difference it would make. And I hope that over time he has seen more of a difference. And maybe we need to burn and, and show light. We, we may need to burn quick and harder. It's a long, slow burn, but, but we need to show a difference. We are called to be different, to be set apart with our faces glowing? And do we maybe shun any pretense of this separated life because we know we want so much to engage with the people around us? Looking at these verses, it's also interesting to see that this has been going on for some time and the people haven't really seemed to be that bothered about it. 
Maybe we are the same. Maybe we, we don't really notice the sin that is within our, our lives and amongst us. Maybe it needs to be revealed to us. David spoke some time ago about a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ron Sider. This application of intermarriage with the world around, this, this application of conforming with the world is highlighted in this book. A quote from the book reads, Scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying Western Christianity. By daily activity, most Christians declare with their mouth Jesus is Lord, but with their actions they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. And the book book specifically focuses on the church in the U.S. and and has some of these startling facts. Divorce is more common among born-agains than general Americans. There's only 6% of evangelicals tithe. And white evangelicals are more likely to object to a neighbor of another race. The church is becoming more and more like the world around it, and in some cases worse. We need to recognize the sin. We need to listen to the word of God. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit within our hearts. If we are to look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, The teaching is, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. If we are to think how we stand out as different, if we are to try and think how we do not conform to this world, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The rest of Romans chapter 12 and into chapter 13 gives us some specific things we can do to be different. Give generously to those in need. Have sincere love for brothers and sisters. Bless those who persecute you. Share others' joy and sorrows. Do not repay evil with evil. And put aside drunkenness, sexual immorality and jealousy. If we are to do these things, if we are to not conform with the world around us, this will show us to be different. This will set us apart and show us as as, as a light to, to those around us. So that is the scandal, the sin of the people of God and and an application of that for us. Let us also then look at this model of true repentance. Let's look at the text, specifically looking at Ezra's prayer, his his reaction to what he has seen and his his confession on behalf of the people. If we look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, his, his reaction is not casual or easygoing. It's, it's one of overwhelming sorrow and astonishment. The people must have concealed their sin. An awful sin can be kept in the dark. We can live with it and know about it in other people's lives and say nothing. We can think, doesn't really matter. It's not that bad. But we must keep the standard up. We must keep sin in view. We must... Keep a serious view of sin, otherwise we could be tempted into it. Also look in verse 3. See how Ezra mourned, and he acted as the catalyst for others to mourn. 
Ezra's reaction is expressive of the rites of mourning. Mourning for the dead in the Old Testament. People would have ripped their clothes, pulled their hair and beard, and sat in stunned silence, as as we see with, with Job. Ezra expresses that the community's sin deserves death. Then in verse 5, when he prayed, Ezra fell on his knees, showing humility with his hands spread out, signifying need. In verses 6 and 7, Ezra paints the picture of how Israel has accumulated guilt, and their guilt is greater now than ever before because of the measure of relief and grace that they have experienced. Then in verse 8 and 9, Ezra turns to the present and to the recent experience of God's grace, not as an encouragement to faith, but to show how truly culpable they are. In verse 10 to 12, Ezra turns specifically to, this, to Scripture to make, to make the point of their unfaithfulness. In verse 13 and 14, the fact that, that Israel was spared after exile was due to God's mercy. How possibly could the people now be so ungrateful and how could they risk being totally annihilated? In verse 15, Ezra's confessions shows little expectation of being acquitted. But the one positive recurring theme is the remnant. Ezra seems to suggest Is it possible at this 11th hour that maybe we can still survive as a remnant? And the climax of the prayer is, you are righteous. This little phrase shows the highest form of worship. God is praised for who he is rather than what the worshipper can get. Ezra did not ask for forgiveness. His aim was to fulfill the conditions of forgiveness. It's an interesting part of this prayer, I think, that Ezra does not specifically ask for forgiveness. His aim is to go about fulfilling the conditions of forgiveness. True repentance is made up of two things, confession and action. We need to face the sin, which we see in chapter 9, the people face up to their sin, and we need to turn from this sin which we see in chapter 10, Ezra leads the people in turning from their sin and putting things right. If we go on into chapter 10, we see words, yet there is still hope for Israel. There is forgiveness. It does not come easy. There are things that need to happen. But there is forgiveness if the conditions are fulfilled. In chapter 10, verse 2, we meet Jekanai, he seems to have the voice of the people. He is the son of Jehiel, who may well be the Jehiel who is listed in, in chapter 10, verse 26. We're not entirely sure. But in any case, he has the voice of the people. And Shekinah sees hope. He sees hope provided that action is taken to limit that problem. If we were to try and apply this true repentance to ourselves there are these two aspects we need to face up to our sin and we need to turn from our sin the passage helps us understand the essential place of sorrow confession and repentance 
to the Christian. If we look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, it reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know that true repentance brings hope. No matter what you have done, no matter how much trouble it has caused, no matter how long ago it is, if we truly confess our sins, we have a promise from the God who cannot lie that he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, that we will be cleansed and restored into a relationship with him. We need to remember that confession is positive. It brings change. It brings blessing. Confession is talking to God about the things we have done. Confession is agreeing with God about the sins in our life and how they are wrong. And we should confess our sins with a view to judging them within ourselves and trying to put them right. Note how in these verses Ezra gives a priority to self-judgment. There's no direct coercion from Ezra. He encourages the people to respond themselves. However, his, intact, his actions are intended to, to assist in this, but the priority is self-judgment. So in, in summary, the two main things we can take from this passage this morning is that true repentance is a unified step of confession and action to eliminate the wrong and also if we think about the specific sin Israel's mission was to mediate the revelation of God and this would only make headway if she kept herself separate from the people around her and in the same way we as Christians are called to be light and salt and these things light and salt are are only effective because of the, of the difference that they are to the situation that they are in. So why do we practically work all of this out? True repentance and being effective salt and light. If we think of the world, everything the world stands for is self-fulfillment. And we need to try and dethrone individualism. We need to try and, and encourage the church to be a community that is countercultural, that is different to the world around us. And I think to do this, we need to have more accountability within this countercultural community. Home groups and prayer cells, small networks where we can be real with one another, is probably the best place for this to begin to take shape. Maybe we should ask ourselves, should we in, in our home groups begin to be asking one another the questions, where did you sin this week? Should we be that open and that real with each other? Maybe, maybe not. But it was this type of loving, caring, and accountability within small groups that, that John Wesley taught and that was the reason for the, the explosion of Methodism in the decades that it, that it grew so quickly in England and America. John Wesley talked about the small groups watching over one another in love. Maybe we should think about this week beginning to try and watch over one another in love. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that can judge, chastise, encourage, and revive us all at once. Forgive us for the wrong things in our lives, the subtle things that we sometimes gloss over. Teach us true repentance and help us to practice this in our daily walk with you. Help us to share with you in your view of the sin that is in our lives. Help us to become a body of believers in this place that is set apart for you, a counter-cultural community, a people that are effective salt and light. All these things we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to come now to the Lord's table. And just as the evening sacrifice was a timely reminder to the people of Ezra that it was only by bloodshedding that sin could truly be dealt with, we come now to the Lord's table where we celebrate the atoning blood of Christ. And as we think of this amazing, divine love that allows us full and complete redemption from our sins, let's stand and and sing together when I survey. When I survey the wondrous cross of which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss and pour content on all my pride. Let's stand together.